What are those for? <laughs> for 50 years, Connie Wyatt has been here at church looking at that stained glass. And Connie says that her interpretation is that the sheep mother is trustingly looking up at Jesus holding her lamb. And I did not check Connie's attendance record, but 50 years would equal 2,600 Sundays. So she could have been here that many times, plus all the other times. She was here at least for the four times when her, all four of her kids got married here on the stage under this stained glass window. So much has happened um, in Connie's life here in the neighborhood. She's been here since 1969 and here at this church since early 70s. And uh, so much has happened here. And in three weeks, there will be yet another event under this stained glass as we do Connie's son Bobby's memorial service. And once again, a mom trustingly looking at Jesus, holding her lamb. Well, um, Susie and I were there um, the day that Bobby died, and um, we were with Connie, and Connie said the most profound thing as we're talking about Bobby. She said, you know, Bobby knew that he could, I, he could always come home. He knew that I loved him. He could always come home. He also knew I did not approve of his behaviors. Because we were talking about how Bobby had making bad decisions and some trouble, but he knew he could come home, and he did. And I said, Connie, that is the most profound thing that the whole world needs to hear right now because you're holding in tension these two things. I love you. You can always come home. And I don't approve of your behaviors. It's almost like a message that it seems like our world, I, all of us need is just kind of more of Connie in that way. Uh, it seems like that idea of unconditional love right now in our world is this idea of, you know, love with no conditions and how it plays out sometimes seems like a demand, to, you know, to be loved um, no, no matter what and no disapproval allowed. Um, so this idea of Connie, you know, saying, uh, you know, you're always welcome home, I always love you, and I don't necessarily approve of what you're doing feels a lot um, like something we need, we need more of. I appreciate that story. Yes. Well, um, shifting to today, we are talking about three things. Um, God's perfect standard, restricted to do more, I like that. And then sourced by God's love to do more. And uh, first, starting out God's perfect standard, this is, I, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. Is there anything known to us that is more discouraging than the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Amen. It seems to throw us out right out and to damn our every effort before we even start. It seems utterly impossible. But at the same time, 
do we know of anything more encouraging than the Sermon on the Mount? Do we know of anything that pays us a greater compliment? The very fact that we are commanded to do these things carries with it an implicit assertion that it is possible. This is what we are supposed to be doing, and there's a suggestion, therefore, that this is what we can do. So Jesus, here in this section we're looking at um, on the Sermon on the Mount, it began with him saying, um, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or set it aside. I have not. I have come to uphold it, and I've come to fulfill it. And unless your righteousness is, exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Very discouraging. Thank you, Jesus feels like, no, I cannot reach that standard, impossible. And um, my efforts won't get me there. And Jesus, he's upholding God's perfect standard. And he even ends this section. That was the beginning of the section. This is the ending where he says this command, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. And again, it feels so impossible. And un utterly discouraging. But, and here's the great transition of Jesus in this passage and in history, Jesus offers us this exchanged life. God is holding his perfect standard, yes, and then he sends Jesus to meet the standard for us. He sends Jesus to live, to die, to rise again, and in that he fulfills the law. And in fulfilling the law, he then offers it to us that when we stand before God, we stand before God with Jesus in between us so that Jesus' righteousness is what God sees in us and we meet the standard. Not only that, that we are forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future, but we also are given spiritual life. We are made spiritually alive. God puts the divine life in us and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so now, we are spiritually alive, able to keep God's standard, able to do these things. We, we've been energized and able to do it. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they come up to God's perfect law, and they realize, I cannot do it. It's impossible. And then, from that place of poverty, I have nothing they receive as gift from God everything. I'm going to attempt an illustration. If you look to the south, there is Pikes Peak towering over Colorado Springs at 14,115 feet. And if you just would imagine, use your imagination, that climbing Pikes Peak is what you have to do to get to God. Like, that's the thing you need to do. And you stand and you look at that huge towering mountain and you say, that is impossible. I cannot, by my own effort, get up there. I can't do enough self-discipline to train and get up there. I can't learn and expand my knowing and understanding and my skills to get up there. <sighs> impossible. Now I know somebody's raising their hand and saying, oh, I hiked Pikes Peak. <laughs> I, I know. I know. But just use your imagination that it's impossible. <laughs> and then, as you're standing there, 
feeling utterly discouraged, Jesus comes along in his cog railroad car and says, hey, follow me. Hop on. I'll take you there. And Jesus, in his little cog railway train, takes you to the top, brings you to God. He does it all for you. And not only that, this is the, I mean, metaphors break down in so many ways, but this is where also Jesus is like, and I will give you a new set of lungs so that you can breathe and exist up here. And I, I will give you this new life, and I'm giving it to you, and now I expect and want you to live it and enjoy it and experience abundance. So, Jesus says, it's possible because I give you the exchange life. Now, Lloyd-Jones says this again about this. He says, this is stupendous, but it is the essential definition of the Christian. The Christian is meant to be like God. He is meant to manifest in his daily life in this cruel world something of the characteristics of God himself. He is meant to live as the Lord Jesus Christ lived, to not follow that pattern, to follow that pattern and to imitate that example. Not only will he be unlike others, he is meant to be like Christ. That is stupendous. <laughs> Such a good word for that. <laughs> stupendous means shocked in a good way. Yes. Is that what it, that's good. Yeah. Well, like Steve said when he read the passage, uh, Yeah, there's aspects of this, like when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What is he talking about here? When when someone slaps you on the right cheek, you usually have uh, a few survival responses that kick in, We talk about them like, you know, you're insulted. Usually it's like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, right? So fight is you're slapped on the right cheek and you want to fight. You want to hit back. Flight would be like you run. Freeze would be I don't know what to do. Fawn would be the one we very often learn in church, which is um, if you think of like a baby fawn in the forest, a fawn, when a threat comes, what does the fawn do? The fawn gets small and very cute, (laughs) right? So this is the response that is like the nicey-nice response. This is the response that's going to smooth over an insult and deny that there was any pain or any, you know, thing wrong that happened. Uh, This is often, again, the sugary-nice response. It's the getting small, being very super nicey-nice. And many people have heard these words of Jesus about turning the other cheek and um, think it is the way in which, the best way in which to interact with like a bully or a manipulator or a toxic person, like just fawn your way through insults in life. And often we are taught that this means when an insult occurs, we are to like look the other way as if nothing terrible has actually happened. Um, Often we think it means we are to offer ourselves up for more pain in those situations. Like, isn't that what Jesus taught when he said, turn the other cheek? But let's talk honestly for a minute about some real life scenarios, like your spouse is abusing you. Your boss is harassing you. 
Your friend is manipulating you. Your child is being bullied repeatedly at school. Is Jesus saying, just take the pain? Like, be the bigger person? I mean, eventually, uh, your love will change them. I don't think that is what Jesus is saying here. In fact, if you fawn your way through (laughs) an insult, insults in life, uh, very often, usually, what happens is that you, that person will keep taking advantage of you or the person that you love. Um, it's, It's foolish to pretend otherwise, and Jesus was not a fool. And so what is he saying here? Uh, What is Jesus saying when Jesus said, turn the other cheek? He did not mean to invite more abuse. He was saying, do not respond to evil with evil. But as children of God, respond to evil with good. N.T. Wright, who is a theologian, he points out that in this historical context, the phrase, Uh, turn the other cheek. It was a subtle but very powerful demonstration of strength. And here's, he goes on to say like, a strike to the right cheek in Jesus's day was an insult. We know that. It was a tactic, um, like an insult. It was a tactic to belittle someone, to say you are inferior That is what a slap to the right cheek would have been in Jesus' day. So what are the options to the person who has been belittled, has been treated as inferior, has been, uh, you know, insulted in this way? What are their options? Hitting back only keeps the evil in circulation. And offering the other cheek is like saying, this is what N.T. Wright says, he says, offering the other cheek is like saying, hit me again if you like, but this time as an equal, not an inferior. So it is not being a doormat. It's actually a brave counter move. It's countering bullying from a position of strength. We see this in the life of MLK, nonviolent resistance. As children of God, the divine life within us compels us not only to restrict what we want to do, our fight, flight, freeze, fawn responses to evil, but to do more by bringing good into the world. Like Jesus has given us a spirit that does not take offense easily, and does not seek personal retribution, but sees that even in this insult, something good can be brought. So so imagine if someone came up to you, just think in a scenario here. Imagine somebody comes up to you at your workplace and berates you publicly in front of other people. Imagine if you stood your ground calmly, looked them straight in the eye, and said firmly so that everyone in the public setting that it was said could hear, is there anything else you have to say to me? Turning the other cheek doesn't mean just keep hurting me. It's really a way of standing firm in the face of mistreatment from a place of inner conviction. It's exactly what was happening with nonviolent response to racism. 
It was standing firm in the face of mistreatment from a place of inner conviction. And here is what um, this might look like. Let's say that your ex is trying to bait you with all sorts of antagonistic words. You might choose in strength not to respond. And silence, perhaps, in that moment is very powerful. That the power of your silence speaks volumes. Or if you get a rude comment from one of your siblings at Thanksgiving, the family Thanksgiving gathering, instead of being rude back to your sibling, or instead of just ignoring it, maybe you look them straight in the eye and you say something like, that was a rude comment. Is there more where that came from? So turning the other cheek is so very often something that we misunderstand in its context and what it meant. Jesus poses this question, what more are you doing than others? Jesus is teaching us not an ethical standard or a moral code. Jesus is teaching us about what it means to be children of God and that there is a way to be self-reflective, to know, like, what is my tendency? Is it fight? Is it flight? Is it freeze? Is it fawn? Which is it? And to enter situations and to remember that when Jesus was talking about turning the other cheek, it was not just invite more abuse. It was actually to stand with an inner conviction in that moment and to respond in love, um, which is useful to us, the divine life compelling us to imitate Jesus, um, which really brings his life, like Tim said, the exchanged life to every situation we face. Very good. I do like the restricted Mm -hmm. to do more because we don't like restricted. Mm -mm. But we have to restrict the natural, the sinful nature. Mm -hmm. We have to restrict some things in order for the divine life to live out. So, So in Jesus teaching that, he gave that illustration in the negative. Don't do these things. Don't. Negative. And then he turns it around and gives a positive illustration. Do this. Love your enemy. Whew. So, sourced by God's love to do more. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And all the people said, Yes, that is right. (laughs) But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There it is again, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is what divine life does. This is what my children do. My people live out these kinds of things. Sky Giathani says about love that real love means to will the good of another person. And to love our enemy is to actively seek what is in our enemy's best interest. You think about that. What is in their best interest? And to will that. Now, I can will some best interest towards Susie when she cleans the table and puts the dishes in the dishwasher. (laughs) That's how it works. No, it is not how it works. How is this possible to will the benefit of others. How is it even possible? Is it by our efforts, again, facing that big mountain and my effort, I'm going to do it? Or is it by some kind of uh, self-discipline 
okay, every time I get that reaction, I'm going to just suppress it. Or some kind of learning that you're coming to a better place of understanding. No, those are not the ways in which Jesus is teaching us to love our enemy. It's something different. It's that we have been made children of God. And now, with the divine life in us, we are able to do these things. It's possible. And God even expects it from us. So, question for you. What moves God to love? What moves God to love? You know, you think about, oh, well, you know, if we obey his perfect standard... It moves him to love us more. Or maybe you think, oh, well, if we disobey God's commandments, well, that moves him to love us less. But that is not what moves God. Jesus gives us some help in understanding this. Um, When he points this out, he said, God causes the rain or the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So here is this, like, insight into God and his love, right? What moves God to love? God himself. One of the three best things about God revealed to us is when it says that God is love. So what moves God to love is God's own eternal heart of love. So God is moving himself to love, to see the best interest of others, to will the good for others. That is coming from God's own eternal heart of love. It is not coming from an external circumstance. God is moved to love by himself, not dependent upon what happens in circumstances. Now, then we have that same invitation into love. God says, I give you love, now you take that love and give it to others in the same way. What moves us to love is that God first loved us, we have love, and now we can give that love. It's not a circumstance that earns it from us or gets it. So truly, if Susie doesn't do the dishes, I still love her and will her best interest, right? These are not circumstantial things of love. We receive it from God, and then we give it. And this is what I think we observed the morning with Connie when she said, Bobby knew I loved him, and he could always come home to me. Mm. Unconditional. Mm. I don't approve of those behaviors, but I love him, and he can come home. Mm -hmm. Really stood out to us, made an impact. Connie was born in 1937, And she turns 85 tomorrow. And uh, Connie's been worshiping God here in this building for 50 years. 50 years in a culture addicted to endless choice and keeping our options open. That is a rare and unusual picture of faithfulness to both Christ and a place. I mean, we've been married, I was thinking, what, 21 years? We've moved like 14 times. (laughs) Connie has said how this stained glass that we look at has watched over the weddings and funerals 
of her family and loved ones. This is a sacred place in her life because of all the life with God and others that has been lived right here. Uh, And can I just say, Connie has not always had an easy life. She has lived on the wild edge of sorrow, by God's grace, has not lost her joy. In her 85 years, she has experienced much trouble. She's clung to Jesus' words in John 16 that says, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And like Tim said, in three weeks' uh, time, this stained glass will preside over yet another grief in Connie's life um, on August 22nd when her son Bobby died. And so we'll be holding the memorial service here in just a few weeks. But, you know, in thinking about Connie, our faith tradition does not do much in the way of icons. Some faith traditions use a lot of icons in worship, and, and we, don't, we don't do much um, by way of icons, but at their very best, icons are images of pictures of a person or a thing that point us to deeper devotion and worship of Jesus. So to me, Connie is kind of like a living icon of faithfulness and joy and love right here in our church. Her face reminds me of the value of staying put, (laughs) the value, um, her face reminds me of just valuing place a particular place. Her face reminds me of, um, as you know her story, the cost of forgiveness, the value of fostering joy. It's like a modern-day living icon. She points me towards Jesus, towards faithfulness, towards love, and all of that is only possible because of the love that Christ has shown her through the ups and downs of life and the faithfulness of God to her. So um, after the second service today, we are actually throwing a surprise party uh, for Connie. So if you are online and you want to stop by, it's going to be in our backyard, which is right next door. What if Connie's online right now? She might be. (laughs) Then it won't be a surprise anymore. (laughs) Um, She's coming to the second service. But if you want to wander over to the farmer's market or if you are at home and you have the time around 11.45 to just stop over, um, we have a bunch of cupcakes and we are going to surprise her with a birthday party, which is just super fun. And she'll be in the second service and then uh, we're going to find out how to get her in the backyard. And hopefully there'll just be a whole bunch of you over there um, to celebrate and to say happy birthday to Connie, but I am grateful for people. Um, oh, Tim and I were talking like, so is this setting the precedent like everybody on their birthday, we're going to be like doing a whole thing? Um, and we've decided... It's John Clute's birthday today, but... Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so we thought maybe like, when you turn 85, we'll throw you a party. So, so just like get the connection card out, let us know when that will be, and we'll, we'll be sure to throw you a party. But so grateful for living examples of God's faithfulness and people like mm. Connie and many of you who point me um, towards faithfulness in Christ. So would you pray with me as we close? God, thank you for pictures of your love and faithfulness. Thank you for Connie and the picture of these things that she is to us. Thank you for her life. 
Um, we know this is only possible, God, because of your love and faithfulness. Um, so we pray that you would, your, by your spirit, uh, work faithfulness and joy and love um, into us. And God, may your spirit just fill us that we might live the life of your children that was painted for us by Jesus in these words on the Sermon on the Mount. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.